With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I graduated from the George School, which is a private uh, co-educational prep school in Philadelphia, in 1958 and went into the military. After going through uh, advanced infantry training, I was transferred to the Pentagon, where I worked for the Radio Frequency Engineering Office. I finished there. And I joined the White House Army Signal Agency in May of 1959. Uh, I served under Eisenhower uh, from May of 1959 until he got out of office. And then I served under Kennedy until uh, I left the service in August of 1961. I worked with a uh, Lieutenant Colonel Holloman, <clears throat> and I can't think of his first name other than the fact that I think it may be Earl, but I can't, I, I can't swear to it. Anyway, uh, my job was to, uh, was to learn how to deal with code, and that's what I did. And when the process of, of dealing with that uh, through military uh, maneuvers, uh, I uh, learned a lot about Project Blue Book. Uh, Blue Book was discussed quite openly in the office. Uh, sections of Blue Book were open for discussion. and. Uh, then there were other matters as well that, that were brought to uh, our attention one afternoon when, when we uh, were just about ready to finish up training. It was about 3.30, maybe quarter four in the afternoon. Uh, Colonel Hollibird brought out <coughs> a piece of, of what appeared to be uh, a metallic, uh, it was a metallic piece of Looked like about a looked like a yardstick. Um, it uh, it had uh, deciphering. It had it had encryption on it, and uh, the encryption was pointed out by Colonel Hollibird uh, to each one of us who were in the uh, in that class, and I think there were six or seven of us at that time. And uh, it was uh, told to us where that came from, and this was in in. Uh, Connection with Operation Blue Book. What they were trying to say is, look, we've we've got this this physical information, this physical uh, property, and to, to go along with what what you've seen in Blue Book, we have now been able to get our hands on and show you uh, materially, and that's what that's what he did. They went on to further explain that that this was the material that had come from. Uh, the New Mexico crash in 1947, and um, <clears throat> that was discussed. Um, 
I think it was discussed at length, if I'm not mistaken. We, we spent perhaps another hour or so. We left about an hour late that afternoon. And, and the next day it was discussed again. They did discuss the fact that there were bodies. Extraterrestrial uh, extra bodies, yes. Um, there were either three or five, and, and, and they didn't even know at that point uh, because some of, the, uh, some of the information that they had gotten apparently was, was incomplete, but three or five stands out in my mind as, as the number that, uh, that were taken. Uh, they were, one was alive, uh, partially alive at the time that uh, this happened, and I do not know what may have happened to him after that. Um, but uh, the Army Air Force uh, was, or the Air Force at that time, was very, very much concerned about Blue Book. And there were strict uh, regulations involving anything that had to do with the reporting of a UFO uh, or uh, talking about a UFO. If you wanted to ruin your career, and it was told to us, I was an enlisted man, I was the lowest, the lowest thing uh, down on the totem pole, and, and it was made clear to us that if we wanted to mess up our career, uh, the thing that we could do the fastest was to talk about UFOs, <clears throat> that we were being groomed for top secret and above, and that, um, and that we, uh, we certainly would not be cleared for any kind of, of confidential material should this be released. Uh, you saw an awful lot. You saw a lot of the pictures. Um, most of the pictures we have seen duplicates of today. Uh, some were, the pictures that I saw were, I think, uh, maybe uh, a little bit better. Uh, they were taken by uh, Air Force pilots as well pictures of, of the UFOs. Yes. So they actually had pictures of UFOs in these pictures. Oh, indeed they did. Yes, not only the Air Force, but, but uh, some were taken by civilian pilots. Uh, some were taken by uh, uh, Marine Air Corps uh, pilots. Uh, and, and some were foreign. And it was, uh, it was made quite clear that, that, that there were a number of others that... Uh, that were in place in other agencies that were being used at that time that were not being put in the Blue Book. I inferred from that that perhaps those pictures were better than the pictures that they were showing us. It was kind of grayish foil-like, uh, maybe eight to ten inches long, I can't remember. Uh, it seemed giant-like when I saw it because it was the first time I'd ever seen anything like this before and, and all eyes uh, were, were just peeled on that particular thing and when he told us what it was it uh, uh, it was frightening it was eerie there you could have heard a pin drop in the room when, when it was first mentioned and what did he tell you it was well he said it would, had been taken from one of the craft that had uh, crashed in uh, in New Mexico and that it had been taken from a box of materials that the military was working on and uh, they didn't use the word uh, reverse engineering at that time, but the, it was some, something similar to the reverse engineering uh, that they felt like uh, uh, they, uh, they needed to work on and it was going to take years to do this. Uh, I do remember that there was, uh, that at the, uh, uh, at the Army Engineers uh, Fort Belvoir, that, that, uh, uh, that they were doing a lot of experimentation at Fort Belvoir, and that surprised me. It, it, it surprised me an awful lot.
Well, they look like hieroglyphics. Um, it's hard to describe hieroglyphics, but, but um, if you've ever seen any ancient Egyptian writings, you, you know that, uh, uh, that the, the hieroglyphics were animated in some form, and these, these appeared to be animated. And if I knew you know, the code that was supposed to be used to, to find out how this language was to be interpreted, then I, it was very expressive. You could tell it was expressive. He had a stainless steel box with a lock on it, um, almost like a carpenter's box, but maybe bigger. And that's where he got this from. And that's where he put it back. And I gathered that was not the only thing that was in that box. Uh, but that's the only thing he did show. I were, this was in the radio frequency engineering office. I did not have any more contact with, with uh, the subject matter of UFOs until after I came in contact with the president. And uh, then I had heard that he did an awful lot of doodling on paper, on uh, notebook paper, particularly at conferences that he wasn't particularly happy with. And he would take to doodling, and one of the things that he did, he did doodle, uh, were uh, various forms of UFOs. Now you're referring to him now? President Eisenhower. Okay. Yeah. I never saw Kennedy do this, but President Eisenhower did it, and he did it in my presence, as well as several other people who, who were uh, attached to the White House Army Signal Agency. We had one instructor, a lieutenant colonel, and his, his, um, I guess his job was to not only teach us, but to make us believers as well. And uh, that's, that's when he produced that piece of material from the, what appeared to be stainless steel box. It was a, maybe a, a kind of a dusty gray-like uh, foil that may have been burned on, looked like it may have been burned on a, on a grill. Um, it was made clear that he, that that, it was inferred that that was not the only piece of information that he had or that the only, the only object that he had, he had several others. Maybe the whole box was filled, I don't know. But that's the only piece he filled out and the reason he did this was, was to make sure that we understood we were dealing with something that, that was totally out of context from, from what we had been dealing with earlier and but that we might be dealing with in the future. I think he intended for us to know that, that our futures were going to be dealing with this subject matter more and more. He did it, describe them as being symbols of, of, uh, of instruction, and that's as far as he would go, but, but he, did in, he did infer that, that, that the instructions, whatever they might have been, uh, were something that, uh, that uh, was important enough for the military to uh, to keep working on on a, on a constant basis. Uh, it, he made it quite clear that, that this was something that was of grave importance. But we were in the basement of the Pentagon, and in those days, that was in 1959, uh, there was a tremendous amount of security there in the basement of the Pentagon. Anybody who's worked there knows what I'm talking about. Uh, you could almost carry on an entire war in the basement, and no one else would know. Uh, what was going on in the floors above, so.
That's how secure it was. I was working on top secret. I had gotten a secret, and by the time I finished the school, I had been given a top secret, but I was to, given, I was to be given one step higher than that. And, uh, and at that time, they didn't have a clearance specifically dealing with this problem. If you dealt with a problem, you got a Q clearance, which was, which was a nuclear clearance. Um, and maybe later on, they decided they were going to change that, but that, I remember that that was the big question. How are we going to, to give security uh, to uh, our security clearances to these people who have been through this course? There were probably 1,500 reported cases at that time that were, I guess you'd say, eligible to be printed or to be put in Blue Book. And the, the, uh, the findings that were put in there were highly scientific. Uh, and they were highly gone over uh, by, by uh, the people that, uh, that, knew what, that knew what they wanted to put in there. Um, this information was information that would never get out to, uh, <clears throat> to anyone else, but it was designed for the use of, of particular military personnel. And so what was there was, was extremely exact and specific. These cases were as bona fide as they possibly could be. They were talking about people who, who had uh, sterling reputations, either in the military or either in maybe a civilian capacity in some form or another. But, but they were not taking any loose cannons. This was this this was information that was uh, they they thought was extremely uh, uh, accurate. In this country, during the early 50s, uh, numerous bases were built where that would allow the president and Congress and VIPs to go in case of, of, uh, of attack. Uh, that is, to maintain the government on its, uh, on its level of being able to function and so forth. And Mount, Mount Weather, Virginia, was, uh, was one of those. Uh, Fort Ritchie. Maryland was another, Camp David, uh, uh, Maryland, in the Catoctin Mountains was another, and uh, there was another one in West Virginia at that time, which we only knew as, uh, uh, as concrete. <laughs> that was the code name. Uh, Mount Weather, for example, is, is, is underground. It is... Uh, uh, it is designed specifically to uh, uh, to be impenetrable as far as then uh, what we knew about uh, atomic weaponry was concerned. Uh, but also, uh, there was equipment up there, and it was specifically told to me when, uh, when I first came there. I first went on tour there, because we, we had to go through all these places where the president would go just to familiarize ourselves on what to do. and and how to do it, but there, there was equipment up there to, to deal specifically with, with the UFO problem. Now, it was a standard, uh, op, it was a standard op, there was a standard operating instruction, and I don't know what it was. Um, that would have been out of my, uh, out of my category of work, but, but there was a standard operating instruction on what to do uh, with UFOs had been sighted around Mount Weather. 
uh, not only on one or two occasions, but on numerous occasions, from what I understand. Uh, they also have been sighted uh, in West Virginia, uh, at the place I referred to as, uh, as concrete. Stories about radar lock-on, yes, there were, and, and the, several of those stories came out of Ohio. Uh, there was Wright, uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, but uh, several others came from California, uh, Texas, uh, Washington, from what I can recall, but I would say there probably were between two and three hundred cases of lock-on, and that's why those cases were in there, uh, because they were authentic. Did I ever hear that we had ever picked up signals which, uh, which could not be identified, or if they could be identified, uh, were they coming in from strange craft um, that, uh, that perhaps had given us uh, uh, or put us under surveillance, and yes, I, I did hear that, and I, I heard that from uh, numerous, I wouldn't say numerous, but at least five, maybe six reports that wound up in Blue Book. Yeah. And these, uh, in fact, several of the Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The uh, reports had come in through pilots' radios. Um, <laughs> when they, in the, uh, so whatever intelligence we were dealing with at that time knew how to deal with us. They knew how to communicate with us. But that they were of extraterrestrial origin. That was the belief. I was told that what they had there for us to deal with came from the New Mexico site, but there were other sites and there were other crashes. They did not say where. Uh, they were not pinpointed, but, but uh, it was made quite clear that that was not the only site that they had gathered information from and, uh, and also materiel. The Wright-Patterson the Wright, Wright Air Force Base uh, was brought up uh, on a number of occasions uh, that apparently there were more lock-ons at Wright-Patterson than at any other Air Force Base. Edwards Air Force Base was mentioned uh, as, as uh, uh, an experimental station. And when, I'm, when I say mentioned in that context, I, I knew that it was, it was uh, mentioned in, this, in, the, in the area of testing whatever they had found. Uh, it was said that that's what was being done. Uh, Lock-ons had come from Edwards Air Force Base. I found that in Operation Blue Book. I was there at the same time that Philip Corso was there. I, when I first came to work for the president, uh, I didn't meet him until probably a month and a half after I'd been on board. Um, and at that time, it was a, it was a very formal meeting. In the councils of government, we must car guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Right after that, I got an opportunity to travel a little bit with the president. Uh, we uh, 
We did some traveling towards Florida. Uh, he loved to play golf. And I had an opportunity to see him under fire, as it were, and, and how he would handle uh, certain people that he didn't like. And when he did that, he would doodle. <laughs> he was probably one of the world's best doodlers, and everybody would kid him. Uh, I wouldn't. I wasn't in a position to do so. But, but the higher officers would, would kind of say little things every now and then. And uh, he, uh, he just would smile and he'd keep on doodling. Well, on some, of those, on some of those occasions, he had just been given messages or just been given information uh, pertaining to sightings or pertaining to information about UFOs. And I know that for a fact because I was in the comm center. And uh, I saw that information. And when he would do it, uh, it would excite him beyond. He was just a, he was just a kid. I mean, and he would, he would uh, get so, he would get so excited and give orders like, uh, like uh, D-Day was was happening all over again. He was very, very uh, interested in shapes and sizes and and. Uh, and what, uh, what made him go, I know that. The White House itself has a huge comm center in the basement. It's run by the Air Force, but the Army's there. Every place where the President would go, including Camp David, has, has a comm center that, uh, that deals specifically with, with uh, presidential traffic. Uh, the President would, would continually, on, a, on an afternoon or an evening, would continually get fed information and it wouldn't be coming from me. It would be coming usually from, from a warrant officer. Well, I'm not sure how that works, but, but that's the way it worked at that time. Usually it was from a warrant officer. So a chief warrant officer had been in the Army for probably 30 years or more. And when he would get that information, um, he sometimes would, uh, would close himself off, and he would be alone for a while. And then he would call in whoever he needed to call in. But dealing specifically with UFOs, I can only remember on one or two occasions where, where that information came directly from the comm center to him. Uh, most of the time it seemed to come, it was indirect. Most of that material, when it's passed through, it's for, it's for eyes only. And that means that if you have a direct interest in it, then you'll see it. If you don't, then you won't. You knew that there were sightings you knew that there were new findings. If you'd been around the president long enough, you could just judge by his expressions what he was, uh, what he was reading and, and what interested him. I mean, it's just something you, you knew from, from being around him. I would say that probably that was among his highest uh, of interest at that time. Yes, indeed. It happened quite frequently. And I wouldn't dare say how many times, but it happened frequently. What happened was uh, not one particular agency could handle uh, dealing with, with the entire subject matter, uh, dealing from the engineering portion uh, to, uh, uh, to citing information, to uh, reporting it in the Blue Book. The whole process of dealing with, with, uh, with the UFO f uh, phenomenon uh, could not be handled anymore by one agency. And so in order to keep it alive, and I guess as cheaply as possible, 
it was, it was given to various and sundry parts of the government to work on. And I guess they thought that they could, they could also keep the intelligence uh, factor as, uh, as secret as possible by, by giving little agencies a little bit here and a little bit there. And that oftentimes is done with, with matters like this. But, but what happened was Eisenhower got sold out. Uh, the, without him knowing it, uh, he lost control of, of, uh, of what was going on with, with uh, the entire, I think, with the entire UFO situation. But I think he was telling us the military-industrial complex will stick you in the back uh, if, if you are not totally vigilant. And um, I think he felt like he had not been vigilant. I think he felt like he trusted too many people. And, uh, and Eisenhower was a trusting man. He was a good man. Um, and I think, uh, I think that he realized that all of a sudden this, this, this matter is, is going into, uh, into the control of corporations uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, could very well be... Uh, used uh, in, uh, in detriment to this country. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. I think the, the frustration from what I can remember went on for months. Um, he uh, he uh, realized that he was losing control he realized that this, this the phenomenon of, of, uh, of whatever it was that, uh, that we were faced with uh, was not going to be in the best hands. And that, that, those were the, as far as I can remember, that was the expression that was used. It's not going to be in the best hands. Um, that was a real concern. And so it has turned out to be. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. I would say that the government has done a, as good a job through the installation of abject fear, as good a job on this as they've done with anything uh, with, uh, within the time of the memory of modern man. I really believe they've done a job. It had been discussed with me on numerous occasions. Um, talked about what could happen uh, to me uh, militarily and, and what could happen to me if I, even if I discussed this as a civilian. He discussed with me uh, what possibly could happen should there be a revelation. Is that what your question was? And. Um, He was talking about being erased. And I said, man, I said, what do you mean, erased? He said, yes. He said, you will be erased. I said, how do you know all this? Or something to that effect. And, and he said, I know. He said, those threats have been made and carried out. He said, those threats started uh, way back in 1947. Uh, the Army was given, uh, or the Air Force, excuse me, was given the uh, uh, absolute control over how to handle this, this being the 
biggest, um, the biggest security situation that, uh, that this country has ever dealt with. And uh, there have been some erasures. He was very convincing and when, he, when he said this, and he was in a position to know. Uh, he, was, uh, he was much older than I, and uh, he had been involved with, uh, uh, with the CIA and, and the DIA both. And, uh, well, then it wasn't DIA, but he was, he was involved with the CIA. And so I, I, he knew what he was talking about. I mean, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't just kidding. So I guess fear has done it. I don't care what kind of a person you are. I don't care how strong or courageous you are. It would be a very fearful situation because they, from what Matt said, he said, they'll, uh, he said, they'll go after not only you, he said, they'll go after your family. Now, those were his words. And so I can only say that the reason they've been managed to keep it under wraps for so long is through, is through fear. They are very selective about how they pull someone out to make an example of. And, uh, and I know that's been done. You can't create anything positively through fear. Fear, fear only degenerates uh, the human soul and the human psyche, um, the human mind, if you will. And, and that, that will eventually go away. We have gotten so much momentum with the secrecy that has shrouded this subject matter that we're liable to wind up in a big fat crash. Um, I don't think that collectively we are able, at least as far as I've been able to determine, and that's granted I'm not privy to, to the things that, uh, that uh, I would like to be privy to, but, but as I see it, when, when you propagate a lie and propagate a fear of, of the truth, you put yourself in a very vulnerable position. Uh, they've been doing it for a long time, so evidently they've, they've known how to do it. But at some point in time, uh, because of the interest, I think that the media has taken, there will be people coming out speaking that have never thought about speaking before, particularly about Nellis. Uh, and what's been going on there. I think because what would be revealed would totally destroy uh, uh, an economy that uh, was designed by certain uh, capitalists in this country uh, a long, long time ago to maintain them and, and their corporations uh, from here to eternity. And I think that, uh, I think oil has a special interest in seeing that it maintains its position where it is, regardless of what kind of pollution, uh, regardless of, of what uh, disastrous side effects may, may have occurred and continue to occur. I think, I think that, that what we're dealing with is we're dealing with certain electromagnetic devices that, uh, that uh, uh, are powered by, uh, by sources that we, that we just don't quite understand as of yet. Well, we're certainly not advertising them anyway. But that these sources would, uh, would mean free power. And free power is something that, 
that uh, corporations panic about, and I think this government panics about it. You know, how are you going to tax free power? Looking at it from a from a governmental point of view, and from everyone that I've talked to, uh, who knows something about this subject matter, uh, they do believe that that um, the sources of energy that keep these vehicles in propulsion uh, are sources of energy that that are just as free as free can be and they don't cause any harm to the environment they don't cause uh, any footprints to be left anywhere I, given, given the fact that we're having a real question about how to deal with uh, the high price of Arab oil right now uh, Bush is, is uh, as you know is trying to insist that we go into some of the Arctic regions and, and take more oil out uh, I, for one, don't see that as a as an answer. I think that would I think that would be totally with the situation with with with, uh, with the global warming situation being what it is. Uh, that would just be another it would just be another nail in our coffin. Uh, but at some point in time, and I don't know when that will be, but at some point in time, uh, we are going to have to be faced with with the sharing of this information that will allow us uh, to have uh, free energy, if you will. A graduate student in college dealing with, with physics understands that, that there are certain curves where, where this, this uh, speed factor does not mean a thing, uh, that certain curve, fact, curve factors in space, um, that time and space uh, take on a totally new dimension. Uh, the government knows this. This, this—it's foolish for them to try to make uh, the rest of us look like imbeciles and saying that this can't happen. What well, can happen? With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What do you have? You got a wife? No. This is Stanton Friedman. I'm a nuclear physicist with a very strong interest in flying saucers. I'm in Kansas City, Missouri on July 24th, 1991. I'm here to do an interview with Gerald Anderson a very important witness which regarded the recovery of a crashed flying saucer in New Mexico in July 1947. We have just had a visit with a polygraph examiner who says he has seen no evidence of deception. This is after spending several hours with myself and Gerald, mostly with Gerald. A full report will be forthcoming. So with that, we will talk to Gerald Anderson.
State your name, please. My name is Gerald Anderson. Where were you born and when? I was born October 4th, 1941, Indianapolis, Indiana. Okay, and give me a summary of what happened in 1947 with regard to a crash flying saucer in New Mexico. Well, we had just moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico on July 4th, 1947. This was uh, approximately the, the, was the day before we went out on a plane to San Augustine with uh, my uncle Ted, my cousin Victor, my father, my brother Glenn, and myself. We drove down to the plains of San Augustine, which is west of Socorro, New Mexico, in the Magdalena Daddle area. And we were down there looking for banded in moss agate, which uh, according to my uncle Ted and uh, my cousin Victor was prevalent in the area. And my brother being a, an amateur rock hound and wanted to get some of this. And it was a way of showing us around the area. And they had relatives down in uh, Magdalena that they wanted to introduce us to. And so we had gone down there and uh, we got down in the Horse Springs area and had uh, driven off onto the plains down an old uh, rutted road. Uh, for oh, a mile or so, and uh, seemed like a long ways. We parked the car, got out of the car, and walked down a hillside, a, a semi-forested, I guess you could say. It had pinyon trees and scrub oak and stuff like that on it, and we walked, uh, well, not scrub oak, but uh, cedar, and walked down the hillside into a, an arroyo, a dry wash, and then walked south down a dry wash uh, toward where the agates were supposed to be at. And as we came around a, a bend in the arroyo that had uh, pinon and uh, cedar trees growing on it, we were able to see farther ahead down the arroyo and on the next ridge line there was a large silver disc-shaped object uh, was embedded in the side of the ridge line and uh, there was debris and, and, and wreckage and stuff uh, strewn about the area. But Mainly, this thing was intact. Um, I would estimate its size from an adult perspective to be something like 35 feet in diameter. I've heard other other people who were there say they thought it was like 50 feet, but as an adult, I would say about 35 feet in diameter, quite large. When we got up to it, there were uh, four bodies there, not human. Uh, there was two of them obviously dead, one of them that was obviously very badly injured, and one of them that apparently uh, suffered no ill effects or didn't appear to be injured, and was uh, was ambulatory, was mobile, and was just sitting there next to the one that uh, was still alive that appeared to be dead. Were they right next to the vehicle? Right next to it, right under the edge of it. And uh, this craft had apparently come in from the east, bounced off one ridge line, went plowing through this arroyo area and then crashed into the, the ridge line and embedded itself. And they were sitting back under the edge. It was kind of tilted up like this, and they were sitting back under the edge here. And uh, I'm assuming that this one creature that was all right had laid this material on the ground, but it looked like unrolled uh, tinfoil that these other three creatures were laying on, like it was trying to like you do a person in shock, you know, put them on a blanket kind of a thing. And apparently uh, it had some boxes there around it um, and had apparently been trying to give first aid or help these other creatures. Uh, when we 
first got there. And as we approached, um, the creature drew back like this, like it was in fear of us, like we were going to hurt it. And it wasn't very long, you know, we were trying to communicate with it, the adults were. And it, it seemed to calm down and just sat there and kind of looked back and forth, watching them, uh, apparently trying to figure out what was going on. Like what did it look like a little bit more? These creatures, all of them were all about four foot tall, four, four and a half feet tall. They had very large heads that were shaped larger on the top, and they kind of tapered down. Not to a real sharp point, but just tapered down to where they were thin. And they had very large, very large oval shaped or almond shaped, I guess you could say, black eyes that had, they were so shiny, they had almost a bluish tint to them when the, the light reflected off of them. Their skin coloration, best way I can describe that is kind of a bluish tinted milky white. Uh, it was uh, it, it looked like someone in shock. And the ones that were laying on the ground were really, really looked more that way, more blue. Uh, like a, like uh, How about ears, nose, mouth? No, there was there was no visible ears on the, the creatures except like if you was just to cover your ear like this, to where there was just a rise there and then a hole without uh, you know your earlobe and, and the rest of the ear there. How about nose? Um, it was uh, the nose was very very small, almost imperceptible, uh, and just like two holes straight in. And the lips were just a straight line, just like a cut. And uh, you couldn't see any visible lips like we have. It was just a slit. And what hair never color? made a sound. Pardon? What hair color? There was there was no hair. They were completely okay. bald. And no sounds? I never heard a sound from one, not out of any of the creatures, including did, the one that was... Did you see fingers? Uh, yeah, they had uh, they had fingers like this. They didn't have a little finger. They just had the thumb and three extra digits, except the center digit was longer, and the other two were about the same size. They were very long and slender. They looked very delicate, and I've made the statement before, and I'll make it again. I think they would have made an excellent violinist because of the, the, the structure of their hands. Um, they were wearing one-piece suits. All of them were dressed exactly the same, and it was sort of a, a real shiny, silverish-gray color. Um, no zippers, buttons? No, I saw no zippers, no buttons. Insignia? Um, no, no insignias. The only thing that was different, you know, um, they all had this, but the only thing that was different from the, the silvery-gray thing, suit, was that down the seam on the seam on the shoulder and around the collar it was trimmed in what appeared to be maroon like cordage. Uh, then the suits were continuous with their footgear. You could see right about this area down it seemed to be less pliable than it was up here like this was a stiffer area like they were boots or shoes or something. But they were all dressed exactly the same. Okay so you and your family are talking back and forth wondering what was going on. What did your family say? I mean, did well, anybody say anything? Yeah, or? my brother, one of the first remarks I heard he made was, uh, that's a goddamn spaceship. Uh, you know, and there, there was bodies up there, and, you know, I was told not to go up there, which I did. And, uh... How old was your brother at the time? He was in his early 20s, I think, 20, 21, something okay. like that. He was a lot older than you were. Oh, yes, considerably. Uh, we... When we got up there, I kind of meandered off to one side, and this thing was cocked up, and I was standing here, 
the bodies were here, and everybody else was kind of down here except my cousin Victor was over here playing and looking in this gaping hole on the side of this this disc, and it, it shaped just like a, a discus, except for a round dome was up on top, and it was this big gaping gashing where you could see inside, and it looked like a double hall. How big uh, length? The, the dome. Oh, oh, the gash. Well, it uh, covered the greater majority from the center of the craft out. It was just like a gaping hole in there. And I'm thinking, you know, it's like about 30 feet, 35 feet in diameter, so we're talking about 17 feet maybe. Uh -huh. And most of, most of that one side was ripped open like that. And you could see inside, and you could see another double hull like uh, in there, and there was these rows of components that was on there, and there were lights that flashed uh, on and off. Some of them were steady, some were flashing. There was a lot of debris and stuff hanging out of the hole. There was uh, evidence that there had apparently been fire. It looked like it had been burnt along the edge there, uh, the gash. Now, this wasn't a gash that could have been caused by the thing coming into the ground. It wasn't at the leading edge of the vehicle. No, no, this was in the side like, it almost appeared it was elliptical. It almost appeared as if something the same shape as the disc we were looking at had hit that, that same, you know, had hit the disc and left an imprint that pretty closely approximated the outside diameter of the disc itself. And uh, it appeared to be caved inward. Okay. And, and, and kind of like, you hit it like this and it just crumpled and caved in and ripped it open. Um, Okay, so you're you're there. You you take all this, and everybody's mystified. What were the circumstances outside? Hot, cold? Very, very hot. Well, to me, being the first time in New Mexico and coming from back east, uh, that dry heat was just like being inside of an oven. It was unbelievable to me. And the, that was the odd part about this thing. The closer you got to it, the cooler it was. And standing under it in the shade there, uh, next to these creatures' bodies, it was like uh, refrigerated air conditioning. And Did you feel air coming out of this thing? Or? No, it was just like it was amphibian. And I remember reaching up and putting my hand on the side of it, but I think I was afraid it was going to hit my head because there was enough room for me as a small child, you know, uh, I was approximately the same size as these creatures, to, to walk up under there and stand there, but I, I kind of did like that, put my hand up against this thing. What did it feel like? It was ice cold. It felt like it just came out of a uh, freezer. Was it smooth? Was it rough? Uh, it was very smooth. It, it had a very smooth texture to it. It was obviously made out of metal. It was very solid. And it was very cold. Ice cold. And there was a smell in the area. It smelled uh, volatile, uh, acrid, like uh, acetone. And that seemed to be coming out of that gash, that smell. Uh, but the closer you got to this thing, the, the cooler it was. So I, you know, I kind of remained there, and I guess that while they were over here, my father and uh, my uncle Ted and my brother, and uncle Ted was trying to talk to this thing in Spanish, and of course it didn't understand a word he said. And dad tried to talk to it, and then they tried, you know, sign language, and that didn't work. And uh, I don't know for some reason I just uh, I reached down and touched it. Laying next to me, and uh, when I touched it, I realized, you know, I jumped back. It scared me and startled me because I, I suddenly realized that these weren't dolls. I thought they were plastic dolls, 
and I, you know, I was still in my mind that these are moving dolls until I touched it, and I realized, you know, this was a dead thing. I'd, I'd been, I'd seen dead relatives before, and I unfortunately had made the mistake one time of touching a relative who was in a casket, and I just knew this is a dead thing, and it scared me, and I ran around behind my father and my uncle, and um, this thing was sitting there on the ground, and it kept looking back and forth, and it just had its hands like this, and it's laughing, and just kept looking back and forth between uh, the three of them, and you know, like it was trying to understand, and all of a sudden it just turned and looked right straight at me, between my uncle Ted and myself, and um, this is when it was just like an explosion of things in my head, things I started, you know, feeling just terrible depression and loneliness and fear and uh, you know, just you know awful awful feelings that just suddenly burst into my mind and I don't know if that meant that it was communicating with me and I was the only one there it could communicate with because I was a kid I, I don't know I turned and, and ran and I ran across the arroyo and up on the area that it had bounced off of during the crash I was just standing there looking down at the scene off in the distance I could see cattle grazing, I could see a windmill, and I could see dust trails out on the, you know, playa, out on the plains out there. And, uh, oh, I was there for a little while, and then I, I came back down, and I guess we were there, you know, Victor was in, when I got back down there, Victor was up in the crack, and Ted yelled at him to get out of there, and Glenn went over and grabbed him by the belt and jerked him off. That's your brother. Yeah. And jerked him off and said, get out of there, you can cause this thing to explode and kill us all, you know, and then, of course, he went prowling around in there. And, uh, I was kind of standing off to one side looking, that's why I knew that there was, I could look off these rocks that I was standing on, look right into this thing. That's why I knew, you know, about the lights and the, and the components and stuff, and then, uh, I don't know, I heard other people talking, and I turned, and there was a group of people coming up the arroyo from out on the plains from the south. They had come up there and of course they walked up and was talking and uh, How many? Uh, there was uh, an older man and five younger students. Uh, boys, girls? There was three boys and two girls. And they were all, you know, introducing, talking to uh, my father and my uncle and my brother. What did the older one look like? The, the leader of this group, yep. the man. <coughs> he, was a, he was a very tall man, very big man. He was wearing a pith helmet when he first came up, one of those kind of explorer helmets. And uh, he was bald, and I know that because he had taken it off and he had done this, you know, a couple times with a handkerchief and put it back on. He was a balding man. And he had a round face. He was very ruddy complected. He was a big man. Um, and he apparently was a doctor because he's, they kept calling him doctor. And as I understand it, it was an archaeological group that was out there on some kind of summer thing. And uh, they they talked, and he apparently was able to speak several foreign languages. And he tried to talk to this creature several times in different languages, and again, to no avail. How did he happen to be there? Had he seen the thing? Well, they claimed that they saw, they said they saw this thing come down the night before, or flaming, you know, and they thought it was a meteorite. And they had uh, talked about, well, in the morning, you know, we'll, we'll go over there and see this, where this meteor came down, because that's what they thought it was. 
And when the sun came up the next morning, you know, and they got about their business and got up and somebody looked over and said, you know, they saw the shining metal and stuff across the plains there and they realized it wasn't a meteorite, but it may have been an airplane and that crashed. So they all decided to go over there and see if there was anybody who was alive, you know, that was hurt that needed help. They had driven over? No, they walked over, apparently, the way I understand it. Uh, and it's quite a ways that plane so it had to take a very long time to do this uh, or they may have had a vehicle I don't know uh, that's an assumption I think on my part uh, what they, they okay so they're around with but the they family. came across the, the plane nonetheless I, I'm not sure if they drove or not I didn't hear any drive. and then somebody else showed up yeah they were down there just oh 15 maybe 20 minutes the tops you know and they were picking up things some of the students and Dr. Buskirk, that they called him, this one girl went up and said, look, doctor, wouldn't this make a beautiful ring? And she was holding what looked like a, a red rod, a, a red tube of some kind, it was kind of a silvery red. And he kind of snapped at her, you know, and he put that down, Agnes, you don't know what that is, I think it hurts you, just don't pick this stuff up. And she kind of said, well, yeah, okay, doctor, and then he went back to what he was doing, and she walked away and put it in her pocket. And a lot of them were doing this, sort of picking up things and feeling things. I was picking up things and feeling things. It was uh, all kinds of material, metals and stuff laying around. And then we heard it, I heard it, well, we all heard it, a sound of a motor coming like a truck. And I went back up the, the incline there to the, to the ridge line, and I could see out there, and there was a, a truck coming up. It was an old pickup truck. It was sort of a, a, a beige color or a tan colored thing. It had a whip antenna on it. And it stopped, and this guy got out, and he's wearing brown clothes, he's got boots on, and he's wearing a straw hat, just like the kind Harry Truman always wore. And he had wire-rimmed glasses, and he was a big man, and he looked exactly like Harry Truman to me. And I you know I'd seen in the movie tone news that the... He was president then. <laughs> yeah, I, I was well aware who Harry Truman was, so everybody was. He was like kind of a hero, you know? And this guy looked like him, except bigger bigger and I don't think he and he didn't look as old either uh, his hair was uh, kind of uh, light gray and uh, he walked over there and they got to talking you know he with everybody and he told them that he worked out on the planes out there and that he made maps and that he had seen the the wreckage from out there on the planes and he saw the people and he thought it was a plane wreck and he, you know there was something was going on and he came over there to see and he hadn't been there but just a very, very few minutes when we heard all kinds of motors and, and engines straining and stuff. And uh, here comes a, a military car with a big white star on the side of it, followed by a six-by, which is a, a military truck with a kind of a canvas wagon uh, type uh -huh. canvas thing over it. And it's full of soldiers. They've got guns. And right behind that was what we call a four-by, which is like a, a medium-sized uh, Jeep truck situation. And it had two big high-whip antennas, all kinds of radio gear in the back, and a guy back there with earphones and stuff on, and he's, you know, working these radios. And they all pulled up and stopped. And uh, Which direction had they come from? Then? They came from, from the north, from horse, the Horse Springs area, right so they could have come off the highway there. The oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's exactly how they got there. They come off the highway the same way we did. Well, in the meantime, that when they stopped, the, this black soldier 
the sergeant, and the reason I know he was a sergeant, my brother told me he was, and he got out of this, uh, this car, and then a guy got out on the other side, and he was, Glenn said he was a, was a captain, he told me later he was a captain, and this guy had orange-red hair, and uh, the, all the soldiers then came running over there, pointing guns at people, and telling them, get away, get away, get away, you know. And when this creature saw these people, the military, he went nuts. He went into an absolute panic, worse than what he did when he saw us. Uh, did he move around, or just his eyes? Or? Uh, he, he just, he just oh, okay. went crazy. And it was like he was looking Fearful. for, yeah, like, a, like he was looking for a place to run and hide. But he never got up. Never got up. He never left the one injured one next to him. And uh, this redheaded officer, this guy was a real butthole. Uh, he made all the threats. He threatened to have people shot. They would move to away. everybody. Oh yeah, get away, get away. You know, well, shoot, get away from there. This is a military secret. You know, just screaming and hollering. And he told my my uncle and my father that if they didn't want to spend the rest of their life in prison, they would never say anything about what they saw there. If they ever wanted to see us kids again, they'd take the kids away. They'd never see the kids, you know, meaning me and, and Victor, that we'd better keep our mouths shut. If we did not, this is what was going to happen. Uh, they were threatening people and pushing people and the students as well and Dr. oh yeah they were, they were they were hustling everybody and one of the soldiers uh pushed my my uncle he had to have a rifle like this and he shoved him back like that well that was something you don't do to my uncle ted uh, ted had a violent temper and he grabbed the rifle and reached over top and smacked this guy and dropped him right there and ted had dropped fight and dropped the hat this guy's a cowboy he, he'll hit you in a minute and of course when he did that bolts opened and I guess cocking uh, they were cocking their rifles uh, they were pointing guns at people and uh, everybody Buskirk and Glenn and dad grabbed him you know pulled him back and got him away don't tell man they're gonna shoot don't do that you know trying to stop this and I think we came very close to having someone shot um, then they really started threatening you know and they interviewed well, did the redhead do all the talking Pretty much, uh, except once in a while the sergeant would, would you know, would chime in and, and make statements like that to other people in response to the redhead. But mainly it was the redheaded. Was there guy. a name tag? Yes, there was, and uh, his name was Armstrong. And I'm not sure if I know that from having read it or know that from remembering it and now being able to read it in my memory or if someone said that to me. But his name was Armstrong. Now, they chased you guys away pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, they did. And uh, they herded us up like cattle, and they moved us up the Arroyo, back in the direction we'd come from, over the protest of this Dr. Buskirk, who said, no, no, we've got to go the other way. We came from over there. I don't care where you came from. Get your ass up the, the uh, Arroyo. And they ran us up the Arroyo. And, uh, so you get to your car, then. Right. Now, they take us up the Arroyo, and just below the hill that we came down, they broke us off and moved us up the hill. Now, this whole time, no one has ever frisked us down. No one has ever checked our pockets to see if we picked up any of this material. And this girl, Agnes, still has that stuff in her pocket, and some of the other students had stuff. 
to my knowledge, uh, at the, up to that point, they had not been searched. Whether they did so afterward, I don't know. They never searched us ever. They run us back up the hill, and uh, when we got to where the car was parked, where Dad had parked the car up there, there's a Jeep with a guy sitting in the back, and there's a mounted machine gun in the back of this Jeep, and all these soldiers. The Jeep pulls out. We're told to get in the car. We follow the Jeep, and the soldiers go with us all the way back out to the highway. And when we get back out to the highway, they set us right there. They wouldn't let us out of the car. They wouldn't let us move forward. It would, I don't know whether they're making a decision or what. But when we got out to the highway, this place was absolutely full of military personnel, military equipment. There was airplanes sitting out there that they had landed on the highway. Did you see any airplanes when you were back at the site? Yeah, there was airplanes in the sky, but nobody thought much about it. You know, I didn't think anything about it. I was used to airplanes being in the sky, having you know, been raised in Indianapolis, Indiana, the home of the Northern bomb site. You know, the sky was always full of military aircraft. I never thought nothing about it. And when we get back onto the highway, there's observation aircraft, you know, high-winged aircraft, and there's one, what I know now, to be a C-47 sitting there. And how we didn't hear that lands beyond me. And how he land? Well, of course, I guess you could land if you're a good pilot out there. There's no mm -hmm. throttle pulls or anything. And it was—they had torn the fence down on the north side of that highway, and all this equipment was setting back up there. And that plane was up there, and they were taking stuff out of the plane. There was uh, military ambulances, and there was trucks with uh, like uh, uh, wreckers, cranes on them, and there was uh, tankers, like maybe had fuel or water in them. There was just everywhere you looked. There was military. And a major recovery operation. Yeah, it looked like an invasion force. It really did. And they were all wearing these these light light khaki uniforms. They didn't look like you know Ollie drafts. They were light khaki, and they all had the same patch over there. That kind of blue funny patch with the the circles on it was was on their shoulder. And a Did lot you have of any clue as to where they came from? Did your brother or your uncle? No, I, I don't know where they came from. Uh, I don't think anybody ever ascertained that. Uh, there were a lot of them had MP patches, and they were and some of them were wearing nightsticks off of these uh, web utility belts. They had nightsticks and they had 45s and holsters, you know, the, the automatics in, in the fold of the holster. And these were the people who were given most of the orders. They had the road barricaded off out there, and we sat there for a very long time. And you know, we were getting thirsty and everything. And we asked, you know, if we could go back to Horse Springs and get some water. Oh no, no, you can't go through there. And right after that, they said, no, you just turn around and you head out of here now, and you go to Socorro, and you, and this is the redhead again. You keep your mouth shut, just keep going, and don't look back. Well, as we drove away, you know, Dad and I said, hell with it. We'll get, we'll go to Magdalena. We get water. Where John Trujillo lived, his relative was dead. And uh, so as we drove away, I was looking out the back window and I could see Dr. Busker and these kids. And that guy that got out of the pickup was standing there. And this Dr. Busker was doing just like this in this redheaded officer's face. And he kept pointing back behind him. And I guess that meant, you know, we got to go back that way. And he was fed up with this guy or something. And he was shaking his finger in his face while they were yelling at each other. And that's pretty much the last I saw of the whole situation. I don't know what happened after that because we just kept going. Did you get home before dark? 
Oh yeah, yeah, it was before dark. Of course, it was in the summertime, so it didn't get dark until way late. And we stopped in, in Magdalena very briefly, and, well, and then just kept going. And uh, the adults were really funny, you know, they were really scared. And I had very rarely, you know, well, of course, I didn't know them that well, but over the years, I knew that Ted was not much of a disciplinarian. He really didn't discipline the kids that much. But he really knocked the fire out of old Victor. He, Victor would want to talk about what we just saw. I just saw it. Ted kept telling him, shut up, don't talk about it. I won't, don't, nobody's talking about this. Finally, he just turned around and knocked the living hell out of uh, uh, Victor for uh, shooting his mouth off. Did Ted work at Sandia then? Yes, he did. He was. Uh, he did something out there in the technical area. I don't know. Had a clearance? Yes. And uh, Later, your dad worked out at Sandia. Yes, he did. He Okay. Um, when we got home, we, Mom was over at Uncle Ted's house, and Mom perceived instantly that something was wrong. What's wrong? Larry hates me. I don't really like Andrew. And they decided they'd tell him. Well, when they did, then, of course, Isabel, oh, my God, you saw demons. You saw the devil because she... Isabel was Ted's wife? Ted's wife, a devoutly religious Catholic person who thinks anything that isn't uh, a vision of, say, the Virgin Mary or of Jesus is, quote-unquote, demons, and that that's what we saw. And, of course, Ted, you know, yeah, God, you know, he's put her off. And we really never talked about it much in the family because of the reaction it got. And my dad was really afraid, and so was Ted. They were, they were, and Glenn especially, because Glenn made the statement about when he first saw the military, he told my father, he said, uh, and Ted and everybody there, don't let them some bitches know I'm a Marine. Don't let them know. And of course, nobody did. And he was in civilian clothes, so you know, he had a pair of uh, blue jeans on. You know, and he was in civilian clothes, so you know, he didn't look like military. Or I'm sure his ass had been in real trouble. Uh, and they never checked. They just assumed, yeah, I guess that we were. Did right. they ask your names? Or? Oh yeah, they took our names. Uh, they got all that from my dad. My brother just very cursory wouldn't, you know, very, very hard to talk to him at all. He let Dad and Ted do most of the talking, which was pretty smart of them under the circumstances. And of course, they never really asked me any questions at all. You were just uh, a kid. Yeah, I was just a kid. And uh, well, you first went public with this. Now, let's first square away. All the other four that you were with are dead. Yes. Yes. That's my been brother, some time. Uh, my brother died of a heart attack. City. My dad died of a heart attack in '78, uh, and uh, Ted and uh, Victor were killed in an automobile accident in the mid '60s, and I assume it was '65. Right now, there's a strange diary that's turned up. Uh, how did that happen? Well, when I went to my father's funeral in 1978, uh, a lot of Dad's belongings were personal belongings. You didn't live in the area at the time. Oh, no, You've gone off to yeah, the military. I, I, and yeah, I've been in the military and then subsequently on the return to the military moved to Colorado immediately. And uh, Your dad had remarried a couple of times. And oh, yeah. This was, uh, so his dad was on his third wife. <laughs> and uh, he his personal belongings and stuff, you know, were kind of given to my two brothers and myself. And my cousin, Valley Jean, there at the funeral. That's Ted's daughter. 
Yes. And she came up and was talking to me, and she said, uh, here, uh, you were there, you need to have this too, and she handed me these photocopies. And at first, you know, I thought, well, you know, what is this dad's diary? And she said, no, it's my dad's diary, but you were there, you need to have this. And then it dawned on me what I was looking at, and I, you know, because I read a little bit of it. And so I said, yeah, okay, you know, and I didn't want to talk about it at the funeral because Roz's side of the family, God bless That's her. That's your dad's third wife. God bless her, I loved her. But they were very religious, and they would have viewed this exactly the same way as Isabel had as evil. And I really didn't want to have any problems with them. Uh, you know, that we were kind of on shaky terms. We didn't see eye to eye religiously, so we were not quite here. You're active in religion now, aren't you? Oh, yes, yes. You're a deacon in the Episcopal Church? Right. Okay, that means you actively participate well, in Well, yeah, uh, a lay Eucharistic ministry. Okay. Well, I, yes, I actively participate. I serve on the altar. What do you do for a living now? I'm a security officer in the state of Missouri. And you've been doing police sort of work for several years now. Oh, yes, yes. About nine years all told. And you also are going to college to be a nurse, and you've already got a couple of associate degrees from community colleges. Right, yes. One associate of science and one associate of general studies, and I'm working toward my bachelor's of nursing. In roughly two years, I will have my bachelor of nursing will be a license. Now to be a security officer you have to be licensed by the state of Missouri? Yes, you have to be a certified law enforcement officer, which means that you have to have gone to the state academy, the uh, Department of Public okay. Safety. So that's not just a pickup thing? Uh, oh no, no, you have to it's a professional. the academy. Yes, yeah. it's definitely. Okay. Um, and you have to, to, to work for the, the state under these conditions, you have to not only be certified, but you have to have prior law now, when we get back to the diary for just a minute, uh, when you were hypnotized by John Carpenter, a psychiatric social worker, and he was asking you questions about the diary, apparently you'd been told that there were a number of copies of that around? Uh, yeah. yeah. Something buried out maybe there too? Yeah, as I understood. Well, in fact, in conversations with Valley Jean after the fact, after I got involved in this thing through the Unsolved Mysteries thing, uh, I was told that that wasn't the only diary, that what I had was a, was a copy, well it was a photocopy, okay. and uh, that there were a lot of these copies around and apparently Uncle Ted or someone had, had put these out through different people in the family and friends and stuff. For reasons I don't know, to keep them from getting lost or something like that. You okay. Know? Now, when I asked you for the original, you contacted who? Well, well yeah, Valley Jean. That was Valley Jean. Okay. Right. She was in a convent. Right. And she was reluctant to do anything. You had to call a number of times, as I recall. That's, that's correct. And you talked to the bishop. Somebody talked. Yeah, I talked to a bishop. Uh, and he convinced her to send the stuff to me. Yes. Because I got it directly from Colorado with a cover letter that strongly indicated that she didn't want any more to do with this. That was part of the agreement. Mm -hmm. But that she considered this the work of the devil or words to that effect anyway. Yeah, I, I think she's of the same opinion that her, her mother was. Okay, that it so. Was the work of the devil. And you see, all I ever had of this was the, was the photographic copies that I had showed you originally. And as I understand it, you received 
are in the, the original from which those have been made. They were partly burnt. She mentioned she had intended to burn them, but because of your persistence and with the agreement that I never contacted her, she would send them to me. And as you know, when I had forensic analysis done, it showed that the ink dated from the early 70s. The paper could have been available in 47. So it was clearly not an original. But it was also done before there was any publicity about this case anywhere, because I know I was the first one to get involved. Exactly. Now, um, as you know, we have discovered, not I, but uh, you had identity sketches done by a police artist of the various people involved in this. Right. Mm -hmm. And as you know, there is a picture, several pictures that seem to indicate that Dr. Buskirk uh, was Dr. Winfred Buskirk, uh, who had received his PhD at the University of New Mexico. And you had described him as in his late 30s, early 40s. It turns out he was 39 in 1947. He was bald and been bald most of his life, even up to then. Uh, did, was there other contact between you and he at that time, as far as you knew? Your family and him, or? Uh, I don't know. Okay, I, not I, to don't, I, I don't, not to my knowledge. I don't, I don't believe my dad uh, had ever contacted him. There's a possibility that Ted may have, and I'm not sure why. I, uh, I think Valley Jean had alluded to the fact that uh, Ted had been in contact with him, and uh, that they had corresponded and this kind of thing. But uh, as far as uh, any personal knowledge of it, no. Okay. Now you didn't tell your story really until the Unsolved Mysteries program was rerun in January of 1990. That's right. That's when you contacted them, got my address, wrote me, wrote yeah, Kevin Randall. Yeah. And we're a little upset that the program wasn't quite accurate. Well, yeah, that was the whole thing. It started off as a fluke to begin with because everything that I saw didn't, didn't jive with what I had seen personally. Yeah. I guess I was kind of miffed. You know, here all these years, I had been primarily forced, you know, by not only by others, but by, you know, my own sense of uh, survival to keep my mouth shut, and wow, here it is, it's on TV, and he got it wrong. And so, yeah, I just impulsively called the number and told the lady, wait a minute, you know, that whole thing was wrong. Well, how do you know that, sir? And I said, well, because I was there, that's why. And boy, that really, that apparently pulled somebody's string. Yeah, and the key thing that was wrong, of course, there were a few mistakes in an otherwise excellent program, was that they had that uh, the Barney Barnett, the civil engineer story, over near Corona, and you knew that it was over in the in the plains. Right. There's a lot more. Well, yeah, sense. and then the fact that the thing looked like a, a tin flat hat or a tin top hat, and it, it didn't. It was this shape, and the Barney Barnett or whoever the guy in the truck was did not drive right up to it on a road that wasn't parked conveniently next to a yeah. thoroughfare, you know. Right. And there was, it was just things like that. I, I don't know. I just, for some reason, I thought, well, you know, geez, look. It's already public. <laughs> yeah, the story's out, and let's get it right, you know. And of course, I didn't, I don't think I realized at the time, you know, how involved this was going to be, but. <laughs> what, what kind of response? <laughs> you live and learn. <laughs> now, I got you together with uh, John Carpenter, the psychiatric social worker, and you guys had several sessions, and then uh, we flew out to the site. Uh, you're reasonably convinced now that the second time around out there we did find the exact location. Yeah, the, the first time in, I, 
you know, it was like 43 years. And, and we're in a I, helicopter. Which and I was never, in, yeah, <laughs> I was in the air this time. And the last time I was on the ground. And so, you know, the landmarks were a little confusing. I was positive I was in the right place. But until we actually got on the ground, John and I, and retraced the yep. route in there that we had come in in the car, uh, I wasn't absolutely sure. There was two ridge lines there, and I wasn't really sure of which one it was. And I had the feeling that the first one that I, I pointed out was the correct one, but once I went in on the ground on foot with John, I knew instantly that it wasn't that one, it was the other one, and I'm absolutely positive that that's where I was at. There's okay. no question in my mind. And you will recall that you described the woman who sold you the pop on the way in? Right. And they we found the said, older woman there who said that was exactly what she looked like in that's the right. end, so. And I'll never forget that lady because I, uh, well, I had it with heat. Telling you, backseat of that 40 Plymouth uh, down those dirty old roads and stuff, and for mile after mile. And of course, my dad was one of these kind of people when he got in a car, it was point A to point B non stop. I don't know why, he just never stopped to smell the roses along the way. And uh, so, you know, I was pretty sad shape, and you know, I, I remember that lady quite well. What kind of response have you had? You went public, I mean, John talked to a newsman, you both talked, he called me in the Springfield newspaper paper carried a very straight, very large article, and that got spread around by lots of people, so suddenly you're a celebrity, if you will. What kind of reaction from the people who knew you on campus where you worked, your friends? Oh, very, very few negativists. There, there's the noisy negativists, you know, we have those. But in general... <laughs> Generally supportive. 99% of the people were incredibly supportive. Uh, only one professor at the university uh, was of the negativist type that was vocal about it. Everybody else just 100% supportive. The majority of these people are absolutely convinced, even without this story, that extraterrestrial uh, life forms exist and that the people are flying around out there and moving between systems and stuff. And it, it was just, it's just an unbelievable amount of support. You didn't lose your job. Oh, your no. boss fact, didn't give you a hard time. Absolutely not. In fact, uh, I think it's, I can, I can publicly say that uh, my boss was extremely supportive because he is a uh, avid uh, ufologist himself. He, he's fascinated by the subject and uh, you won't have any problem convincing him either. And my boss has a master's degree. He's not someone that's untrained observer that's given to hallucination. Uh, most of the people who are the most supportive of me are people with very high educations, very, very solid educations, very solid, upstanding degree people, uh, right. given to hallucination. You went, you attended a UFO conference uh, with John Carpenter, and he gave a paper, I guess, and introduced you. Uh, sure did. And you got very, a response from that audience, too. Yeah, 100% supportive. I was really quite relieved and made very, very welcome. And, uh, well, you've been interviewed by a number of other people, uh, Linda Howe working on a documentary and so forth, uh, seems to have bought the story. Now, uh, how much contact did you have with Kevin Randall? Uh, a very brief telephone call. Uh, I came home from work one day and there was a message on my answering machine, and as you well know, I, I have a tendency to be hard to get a hold of. Yes. <laughs> Left his number, and of course I had his address and I, I and yours, and I had sent cards to both of you, and something to the effect: if you want to know what really happened out there, call me. Yeah. 
And uh, he had called and I wasn't there and he had left his number, so I returned his call. Now, uh, I talked to him very briefly, uh, primarily because I didn't like the man's attitude. I don't feel comfortable with people who call other people liars and charlatans and phonies and say that they rigged their research to make it come out the way they want. And when someone starts telling me this kind of thing, then the first thing I want to do is I want to get away from them. And this is exactly what I did. Now, I understand that this man claims that I talked to him for two hours and that he has a two-hour tape of one contradiction after another to me, and that's not quite true. Okay, there's been no other contact with him. No other contact. I won't give the man a time of day. Yeah. And, uh, Has any other investigator, any of the noisy negativists approached you directly? No, none at all. The only other investigator is you yourself or Don Berliner and, and uh, Bob Bigelow and John Carpenter. Okay. And, uh, and you're quite familiar with our, our involvement. And you uh, agree that uh, on that first trip to the Plains, it was you, I, Bob Bigelow, and a pilot in the helicopter. Yeah, uh, Joe Channing, the pilot, was in the front seat on the left side. I was in the front seat on the right side. You were directly behind me. No. You were directly behind the pilot on the left side, and Bob Bigelow was directly behind me on the, on the passenger side. Right, and then we met up with eventually with uh, Don Berliner and right. John Carpenter they and spent at, the next three days. They together. drove to Dattle, they drove the Jeeps and stuff to Dattle and were waiting for us at Dattle when we landed in the uh, highway island out there. Right, and as you recall, where did we refuel the helicopter? Uh, Springerdale, Arizona. Because okay. so it's not far to Arizona, that's the point. Oh, no, no, it was just a matter of a few minutes, actually. It was 30, 25, 25 minutes maybe at the max. Yeah. Uh, west of where we were located. All right, I think uh, we may pick this up another time, but I think that'll do us for now. I really appreciate the time and trouble and effort and all the rest of that, and on to bigger and better things.